So, here's another episode that I enjoy and don't have a lot to say about, although I do have to say it is nice to say Natoth back. I mean, Grilka back. It's, uh, it's good stuff. Before we actually begin, I want to talk about Worf, because one of the things that's pointed out in this episode is something that I don't think was ever intended by the writers. It's just something that kind of stumbled into reality. You see, Worf constantly bangs out about tradition. He knows off of the top of his head rituals based on different people from different you know factions or different parts of, of the Klingon Empire. Now, in this episode, I'm not, I'm not referring to the thing where he mentions the ritual for her. Instead, it's most likely that he actually specifically looked that up because he's sweet on her. But the fact remains, this is the kind of guy who's really big on that. I almost wonder why. Before I say anything else, I'm curious what you guys think. Now, I have my own theory on it, but as ever, I'd love to hear your thoughts and your statement on exactly why you think Worf is big on tradition. Because as Dax so expertly points out, he's not a very traditional Klingon. Not really. I mean, very little about what he is and what he does is traditional. Even his base code of ethics is completely different from a Klingon's. He's not human. Rather, he believes in honor. Internal honor. Whereas most Klingons believe in honor external honor. And I've talked about that so many times, I'm not going to rehash that point. But even at that core level, he is not traditional. So, why does he have this big thing on traditions? My theory is it is specifically because he is the wharf, or rather, the son of Moog effect, as I've started taking to calling it. The idea that he adheres so much to what he believes the ideals are of Klingon culture and Klingon society, that he then venerates those traditions probably just the ones he cares about or, or actually approves of, because, well, because they're the things he likes. That's not hard to understand. How many of you out there like a thing? You know? And so it's not hard to take the next step of saying, ah, the, you know, the, the ways or the, the concepts of such and such, you know, insert thing I like here are awesome because they're of the thing you like. That's my take on that. But there's a nice bit where Grilka doesn't ask Cork to look at her books, and in so doing, asks Quark to look at her books in order to figure out what the hell's going on with their finances because she knows she can trust him and she knows he knows what he's doing. It's actually kind of a unique circumstance because you can just tell there's not really a lot of other people she could have gone to. I find myself wondering what Grilka and her house thought of in, in consequence of the one-episode war with the Federation. Not the Cardassians. I, I doubt anybody really shed a tear about the Cardassians, but the Federation? A little more interesting of a conflict there, isn't it? And she mentions how the war has been very damaging to her and her house, financially, which makes perfect sense. Wars are a very expensive ordeal and usually kind of wreck economies, historically speaking. But I also had a weird thought. I wonder how many of the, let's call it what it is, lesser houses of the Klingon Empire had, let's say, an, an, were basically forced to shoulder the greater burden of the financial bear of the war or the conflict, or the expansion, or whatever you want to call it. I hate to call it a war, but you know what I mean, right? Had to actually sh shoulder more of the financial side of things, because, well, I mean, financial matters are dishonorable, right? Only a Ptah would actually pay attention to the finances of their house. You know, all that kind of claptrap. So, we see the return of two guest stars, uh, three, obviously, Natoth, <laughs> the woman who plays Girolka, being one of them. She's not Natal, I'm just making a joke. Uh, but we see Joseph... Uh, oh, God, did I write this name wrong down? I have horrible handwriting. 
And, and normally I can understand what I read, but when it's a name, I'm just... It looks like Joseph Ruskin. That sounds about right, because he plays Tumac. He's actually a long-standing Star Trek character, uh, guest star. And also Phil Morris, who's actually a personal favorite of mine. He will actually be returning in Voyager, of all places, after this to do some good stuff over there. But he'll be in DS9 as well as probably my favorite Jim Hadar across Deep Space Nine. Don't worry, I'll point it out when we get there. So, there's a really funny scene... And again, it's wonderful because it makes so much sense when paralleled to human society. How many of you, <laughs> male, female, how many of you have ever embarrassed yourself to try and impress someone of the opposite, well, of the gender that you're interested in? I have. <laughs> I have. And you know what I mean, right? You're, just, you're just trying to act cool or decent or neat or trying to get their attention, you know, and just kind of playing it off. And you make a fool of yourself, right? And it's funny, because that is exactly what Worf does. He just shows up, loud, says, Get out of my seat! Smash! I demand blood wine! Because that's what I drink, obviously. And then he turns around and like, What is that horrible smell? And then he challenges the bodyguard to a fight, you know. Now, that is Klingon mating, basically. And you'll notice that Tumek picks up on that immediately. And is like, alright, come here, walk with me, son of Moog. And he's actually really polite and understanding the whole time. Again, it's the only scene that uh, Joseph Ruskin uh, has in the whole bit, really. I mean, he's in a lot of scenes, but this is the scene where he actually gets to act and do something. And he pulls it across brilliantly. He's like, listen, you're doing fine, okay? There's no dishonor here. You have not embarrassed yourself in any way, but you should discontinue attempting to court this woman. She can never be with you. And to be blunt, I'm not sure you know anything about courting her. And he says it in a wonderful way that's not insulting. And in fact, he's actually quite kind about the whole thing. However, I like to think that this is the main motivation by, be, behind which why Worf decided to go ahead and assist Quark in courting Grilka. Basically, just because his pride was pricked. That he, you know... Obviously, Worf has a... Uh, let's call it what it is, an infatuation with Grilka because she's such a woman based on looking at her from afar. Yeah, no, that totally infatuation. And, um, <laughs> but uh, you get the impression that he wants to prove that he could have wooed her if he was allowed to. And obviously he can't. He is dis you know, dishonored and spit upon <sighs> again. But <laughs> I like the idea that he's like, all right, Quark, you're going to do this and you're going to do this this way and you're going to do it right. And you're going to do it because she's going to like it. <laughs> and there's this later line he says where he's like, I cannot, never... Cannot, uh, I forget actually what he says, sorry. But he basically says, oh, couldn't, couldn't woo a Klingon woman, could I? Like, he doesn't say it like that, but that is what he means. It's a great little bit. I also like Quark, the romantic. I've pointed out before, he is definitely a romantic person. And, <laughs> I just, I'm sorry. Quark puts up with it. He really does. He puts up with a lot of crap in this episode. And it's funny to me because... We never see Grilka again. I'm just going to spoil that for you. She will never be shown again on this show. In fact, the next time we'll see Grilka, if you count it, is in Star Trek Online. And, well, it's basically a bit role, unfortunately. But anyways, and I say unfortunately, I actually liked Grilka a lot as a character. I wish we had seen more of her, especially since the Klingons will be more of a recurring element now that they're finally at peace with us again, right? So it would have been nice to see her more on camera. I mean, I like Hertzler too, but damn it. Anyways. But I bring this up because Quark, by all accounts, seems to actually like this woman. 
not just the in-bed thing. And he admits this to Dax. He's like, yeah, obviously I do want sex with this woman, but that's not it. I'm not just trying to bed her. I actually want something real with her. And I believe him. See, the, again, the problem is that we'll never see her again. It's, it's hard. It's, it's, it, this is the problem with Star Trek in general. It's, this is not a Deep Space Nine problem. This is a Star Trek problem. You have some big cataclysmic uh, impacting event or, you know, some significant character moment, and it's hard to get into it because it only lasts until the credits. You know, this is one of the reasons I was so goddamn pissed over in Voyager when uh, uh, the episode Real Life with the Doctor. He, I mean, the Doctor went through one of the most horrifying tragedies that can be imagined, and it's never mentioned again. It, it's a decent episode in a vacuum, but it's it's just hard for me personally to care. So I'd like to talk to you about how Cork really cares about this woman and actually has a real legitimate affection for her and wants to make this into a real relationship of cro- of, of of crossing boundaries of culture and species, which in all, all honesty is kind of what Star Trek's about. I'm not even into romance, and I'm totally with this because of, of, of what it means and because of how it's acted and because Armin Shimmerman does a great job of it. And... <sighs> I didn't write down her name. <laughs> and the woman who plays Grilka, I'm looking it up. Mary Kay Adams. Mary Kay Adams does a great job as Grilka. Both of them do an excellent job of their portrayal of both characters, and I'm with it. I feel it, and then it's gone. That's what pisses me off. Do something more with it. Bring it back. You can't tell me there aren't filler episodes after that. I know for a fact there's a filler episode coming up fairly soon. So... I do like it, though, because she obviously has a disdain for Ferengi and Ferengi traditions. And he has a disdain for Klingon and Klingon traditions. That's why I like it so much, though. What we're seeing here is a true Star Trekian thing. I mean, I feel like I'm just repeating myself at this point. He cares enough about her, respects her enough. Now, this is a romantic thing. But still, the core of element here is that they respect each other enough and care about each other enough to be willing to accept and move past those boundaries. And that's awesome! So then, uh, Phil Morris gets up, Thopak, and he's like, You have no honor! I find that funny, because, see, again, as we've talked about so many times, when any Klingon who isn't Worf says that, that's not true, when most Klingons who aren't Worf say that, what they mean is you have no currency, no external honor. Which is funny, because Quark actually has established external honor already. In front of the council, no less. So it's not like he does have no external honor. He has proven himself. So Thopak's statement is a literal lie. At the same time, it's kind of the point, isn't it? That is a very Klingon thing to do. To say you have no honor is to... What, what they really mean when they say that is, you must now prove you have that honor to me. Usually that means a fight. Not always. You can respond verbally. You can respond physically. There's a lot of different ways to react to that. Again, Klingons being very much about how you react to them. And so Quark's reaction to accept the fight and be willing to fight to the death over this shows that he is willing to prove that, no, I actually have earned my honor, thanks, and I do, and, and just to commit to it, right? Again, a very Klingon thing. I do like the fact that he ended up, well, that Quark didn't want to spare the guy, which I find interesting because Quark is the kind of person who's really hesitant about killing in general. So um, I, it's, it's almost out of character that he was willing to swing, and it was Worf's control that was preventing him from doing so. Anywho, so the puppet device, I need to comment on that briefly. 
I'm okay with it because it's flawed and it breaks down. Now, I know it broke down for comedy's sake, and that's acceptable, but I like it because it's limited. Because, my God, there's a lot of implications when it comes to a device that can just control the muscles of another person. Only some of the muscles, not all of them. And if you think about it, the, the more you think about it, the less sense it makes. That's kind of the point. Uh, Ronald Moore himself mentioned that he deliberately went out of his way to not technobabble or explain this device because he felt it would ruin it or bog the episode down. And I actually agree. Be because the more you think about it, the more it's like, well, hang on. Which of his, what of his body is it controlling exactly? Because he can still move and react and talk and think completely regardless of this. And it's not precise control either. Like the little fine details, like the digits, don't quite translate. So is it just like it's specifically controlling like arms, chest, legs, and that's it? You know, how, how does this thing work? And again, it breaks down mid-stride, which I do like. Because it shows that this is not a reliable piece of technology. Because if it is, this could have solved a lot of problems a lot of times. Don't worry, we'll see something similar to this in the future, though. Really. <laughs> I'll try to point it out when we get there, assuming I remember, because that's a ways from now. For those of you wondering which episode I'm referring to, without spoilers, of course, the episode is The Magnificent Ferengi. Anyways. <clears throat> so, you know, Quark, the adaptable. What I like about this, I've said this so many times... The best adaptations are truths. What I mean by that is if, if you're going to roll with the pu punches, if you're going to do improv, basically, the wet best way to do improv is by the truth, because you really mean it. And so even though anybody paying attention, anybody cognizant or care, uh, careful enough to notice how you are making something up on the fly, will believe it more because what you're making up is actually true. And I like how Cork leans into this. He's actually pretty decent at this approach to improv. I pointed out his particular style of lying before because he starts off with the lie, uh, the, the, the Ferengi tradition. And then he segues immediately into the truth. He starts talking legitimately about how he feels about her and basically poesizing, poetizing, poeticizing. He starts verbing as a poet, and it's, it's interesting to see it on display. And again, I fir firmly believe it. It'd be nice if it ever mattered again, since not too long from now, I'm just going to tell you, this quirk is going to go to Risa with two Horgans and be seeking Jamaharom. Anyways. Also, what happened with the Cardassian woman? Anyways, anyways, anyways. I do like how Dax, who has been flirting with Worf for episodes now, finally is just like, I, 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 look. Let's go. <laughs> it's just... I, mean, I love the bluntness of it. Now, I'm going to go ahead and admit something. I've kind of danced around this issue before. I feel like I've commented on this live on camera, either on a recording or a stream before. I don't buy the Dax Worf relationship by memory. By memory. I'm going to be paying close attention this time through with analysis mode on. Because by memory, it always just felt like, all right, these two actors act well together. Let's fling them together. There's a lot of weird pairing up on Deep Space Nine. You ever notice that? Like, a weirdly large a time, amount of time is spent on romance compared to other Star Treks. But, and I don't mean romance of the week. I actually mean recurring romances. Although, we haven't seen Shakar in how long at this point? Just point it out. Anyways, so... We'll see what I think of the Dax Wharf relationship. But before we actually start actually recovering the episodes where the two are actually together... I would like to know your thoughts on the Dax Wharf relationship because it's, and, you know, spoilers, it's going to be a long term one. It's going to be developing over several episodes from this point onwards. And I'm very curious what you guys think of it. 
Admittedly, when I think of the relationship, the episode that most comes to my mind is Let He Who Is Without Sin, which I hate. So, again, we'll see what I think of it going back through. I do like how Dax finally just decides, screw it, I'm just, I'm here, look, I want to go out with you. In human terms, she basically just kissed him. If they were both a human couple, this would have been what she was like, ugh, grab, mwah, right? I mean, you've seen that in fiction before, and I've seen that in real life, too. So it's just funny to see the Klingon version of that again. All right, look. Funk. This is how this is working. <laughs> Anyways, an overall decent episode. I hope you've enjoyed my minimalistic thoughts on it. See you next time, guys.